because yeah. Dave and I are definitely not experts in like podcasting. <laughs> Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi, welcome to Living the Dream, your favourite left-wing podcast. Uh, this is John. I'm here by myself today because um, we've had an awful time with kitty sicknesses and have been unable to arrange a time for both of us to do the interview that we are doing today. So um, that's been, you know, Neither here nor there. It happens. It happens. Um, but I'm very excited. I'm very excited because today we're talking to Shan Winscript. How are you, Shan? Good, thank you. Very good. Um, we've been trying to organise this forever, haven't we? <laughs> and I'm sorry that it's that it's taken so long. It's been appalling, and it's all our fault. Um, but I'm really excited that we get to do this. This topic, for better or worse, almost certainly worse just keeps becoming more and more topical in yeah. terms of anti-Chinese racism in Australia. It yeah. has just been, I mean, with the coronavirus stuff, it's just been nuts. But before we get into all of that, Shan yeah. is a PhD candidate and at the end of her PhD, she's submitting soon, and yeah. is a um, and is a casual academic at Melbourne Uni as well. And her research is really fantastic. And we're going to get onto that later on in the interview. But um, Shan, do you want to just briefly um, introduce yourself, introduce whatever, what projects you're involved in, and then we'll get into some questions. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, John, for um, having me. Um, as you said, I am um, a PhD um, candidate at uh, Melbourne University. I'm doing history. My um, personal research is um, specifically about diary writing um, in Maoist China and more particularly it's about diary writing in the Cultural Revolution which was um, a decade beginning from um, 1966 ending in Mao Zedong's death in 1976 so a lot of people wrote personal diaries in this uh, during this period and we um, Melbourne University has a fantastic collection um, uh, of about 800 personal diaries. So that's the basis of my um, thesis. Uh, I'm looking at, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking about this later um, in the interview. Um, I'm, I'm particularly looking at how people imagine themselves as political subjects in a period um, you know, marked by violence and intense collectivism. So how do, how did they construct a sense of individuality um, in that period? Um, aside from my uh, uh, research, I am also I am NTU and the National um, Tertiary Education Union delegate. Um, I am part of a, a very active network uh, of casuals and sessionals, um, which was established by um, by us by by um, mostly research students, but also you know um, casual academics, admin um, staff members. Um, at Melbourne University in early 2019. So I've been, um, apart from writing my thesis, I've been, you know, quite active uh, in terms of um, casual 
um, activism and also uh, our network um, has been uh, quite um, proactive in terms of protecting international students' um, interests and so on. So, yeah, that's me. Yeah, so that's that's fantastic. You are a very busy person on top of all of your studies. You've got all this other stuff going on. And it actually ties in well to what I want to talk about to start off with, which is there's an international student protest on later on today. We're recording on Thursday, the 7th of February. Um, and I just wanted to, um, so do you want to tell us what that's all about? And um, and what, what are the sort of reactions by international students, particularly Chinese students, to the way that this coronavirus stuff has been playing out? Mm. Um, yeah, so the rally is um, today at 4.30 outside of immigration in Melbourne. I think there is a concurrent rally being organised in Sydney, um, also um, outside of their immigration um, office. And the rally was basically a uh, response to the uh, recent travel ban announced by Scott Morrison on last Saturday, um, banning, you know, uh, any uh, all the people from, uh, if you're from China, you can't enter Australia unless you're Australian citizen or permanent resident. Um, so we are, this is our immediate, uh, immediate concern. Uh, we're protesting against this, uh, but we're also um, protesting t- today um, about you know, the, the, the widespread uh, racism unleashed uh, since the, you know, since the media um, story broke out about coronavirus. Um, and, you know, the, the, the consequence of this it has been felt uh, by people, such as, you know, international students, uh, migrants, temporary uh, visa holders. So we're basically speaking on their behalf to, um, to their interest, and we want to say no to racism um, apart from standing in solidarity with Wuhan and Chinese community. So that's the that's the rally. Um, so I've collect, I've talked to um, a number of my uh, former students, international students. Some of them are um, my, um, my current students. Many of them are now physically trapped inside of China. Um, they basically, they're in a state of limbo, like they can't come back. They don't know when this travel ban is going to be lifted. Um, they're facing all sorts of, you know, issues such as visa um, issues, like, uh, and also rent issues. So one, one of the students, so, so I've talked to them um, in the past few days and I've collected a few uh, testimonies, um, which I will be reading today at a rally, but I'll just share with you um, a few um, things here. So one of the students said uh, she, uh, she's been on the phone, she, so she's in Beijing right now, she can't come back to Australia for her study, and she's been constantly on the phone trying to cancel or reschedule her travels, um, and that's been very hard because um, there's obviously there's no certainty for her to decide uh, anything. And she said that she faces uh, a soon ending rental lease in Australia, which she just mm. doesn't know what to do with that. She's got pets waiting for her to return to, uh, but obviously she can't. Um, but this student, um, 
she also, while, while I was in China, she um, one day uh, used her VPN to log into your, uh, her um, Twitter account. Mm-hmm. And to her surprise, she saw this, you know, uh, torrents of kind of torrents of online comments cheering for the travel ban, and she felt extremely confused and hurt. And yeah, she says um, uh, she's uh, it's so crushing to see how many people are falling for the logic that pits the welfare of Australian people against people outside of the nation. So, can you imagine someone right now trapped inside of China, so? Um, insecure, anxious about her future and this travel ban suddenly facing this, you know, um, uh, all this uh, uh, torrents of online racism. So mm. one of the students, and I've also got um, another student here saying that she's, you know, she's, she had, so this, this one's here in Australia. She didn't go back to China during the holiday period, but all of her friends are trapped inside of China no one can come back for their study. Um, they don't know what to do with their, you know, semester of course is about to start at Melbourne mm. University and they just don't know what to do with it. Um, some of the lectures will not be available for them online. So um, the obvious answer is, you know, they have to delay their study. So um, we have this, you know, many, many people facing delay um, of the study, their work uh, uh, and all these, you know, material um, issues. She also mentioned that she, while, while she was studying in Australia, so she's been here for a number of years, she already felt deeply saddened and terrified by how the Australian state had treated the um, asylum seekers and refugees. Mm. So right now, seeing in the news that people are, are being sent uh, to uh, offshore detention centre just extremely confused her um, and uh, further, you know, saddened so she made this um, comment about um, refugee. I won't read all this out here, John, but you know you yep. get a sense of um, what yep. kind of uh, you know what kind of material and also psychological, mental um, consequences the travel ban has um, needed. Yeah, and I mean, like just on that kind of briefly, like it's in like what I've seen from the universities in Australia is, you know, obviously they're mostly concerned about profitability. Is it yeah. the big worry now is, you know, that with people excluded, you know, China's our biggest, you know, international student market. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like they're worried about losing money. So what they're doing is I know casuals, I'm not sure if you've been stuck with this, but other casuals I know have been basically headed up with like making all their units online as quickly as possible. So they mm. can offer them to these Chinese, Chinese students who are stranded. Mm in Beijing, in Shanghai, because they can't come to Australia. So they're going to be getting this like haphazard second class education to start off with, because there's absolutely no idea about when, you know, this is a a ban, I believe that's in the, does it have an end date or is it, is it, I know that they're going to be on Christmas after two weeks, but is it just like a month or is, is there no end date on the ban that you're aware of? I don't think um, I, I maybe it's just me not being aware, but I don't think there is end day. I think it's indefinite. Yeah. That's the way. thing. Yeah. So that's a, it's how long the government decides that this coronavirus thing's a problem, right? Yep. So that's you know, let's talk about your yeah, section. You know, like and and that ties well into what you're talking about about 
the bo- the broader border regime in Australia, mm. right? And you know, the fact that we're using Christmas Island as like an immig- which is was an immigration detention facility, yeah. um, and for the for these purposes, just connects the dots um, in a horrible way, of course, but in you know, a very kind of and helpful want to understand the machinations of the border industrial complex, right? But I guess I want to get onto that and I want to get onto the broader history of Australian racism. But firstly, I guess this coronavirus, this racism that's emerged that you talked about that we've seen is not coming out of the blue, is it? Mm. How is it related, do you think, to these earlier sorts of cases that we saw kind of late last year that first inspired our interest in doing this show about um, about other instances of anti-Chinese racism, how are these related, do you think? Uh, I think, well, let me start by saying that um, what we're witnessing now, I mean, there have been other pandemics in, in our history, in modern history, everywhere. And in this country, with you know, a deep, long entrenched, um, uh, I don't know, racist um, history, um, we've, we've seen how... Uh, uh, public health issues always been sort of um, conflated with uh, the idea of national borders and mm. nationalism. But I do want to say that in no uncertain terms, the current uh, coronavirus uh, saga is different in part mm. because we have been cooking, uh, we have been making uh, these um, uh, possible for the past few years with all the you know China threat. Mm theories being propagated out there so so I'll, I'll, I'll get to that point in, in a bit but I just want to say that it's because of um, what's been simmering behind the scene or you know, not quite behind the scenes out there that right now we are witnessing what we're witness, witnessing now is a seamless process where public a public health emergency has been coalesced into a crisis narrative that's mm. legitimised racism, na- nationalism, and the, the the hardening of borders, as the students have said. Mm. So, you know, you see this um, every day in every day in, in it's it's routine of racism now. It's not even online or in some sort of you know dubious form. It's every day um, out there in the streets. I got up. I got on a tram the other day and a woman just immediately covered her mouth and nose with her mm. shirt. And there are, you know, doctors reporting a spike of racism towards um, medical staff and patients uh, simply because they look Asian or Chinese. Mm. So we, we didn't get here from nowhere, as you said. And mm. these, you know, these current racist incidents, certainly they have, pres- um, they, they're not unprecedented response. They are... Um, uh, in a sense, a product and also um, a contributing factor to the um, long entrenched um, history here. So you asked about the um, uh, precedented um, event uh, last year or a few years ago. Um, I think apart from the obvious historical, um, apart from the obvious historical reference, uh, such as, you know, yellow hair, Australian white Australian policy. John, you've written about that, um, mm-hmm. and also the idea of Cold War scare. You know, anti anti communist sentiment. Um, we've seen what we've seen in the past four to five years is um, the uh, is this narrative of um, China being a threat 
to Australia. Mm. So, you know, a number of public uh, uh, figures have propagated um, these ideas. The most famous one, of course, Clive Hamilton published a book on China invasion. Um, so, it's this sort of narrative, I think, immediate, um, the most immediate uh, factor that gave rise to the uh, framing of coronavirus as a Chinese, you know, disease threatening our um, our borders or our um, uh, existence and well-being. Yeah, like, I mean, there's this way that, I mean, I guess there's this idea of China as th threat has been just like everywhere, hasn't it, in terms of how mm. we see, um, you know, like it's played out on the universities in terms of kind of, you know, these concerns about, you know, Chinese students first, Chinese students kind of being in government, yeah. but increasingly that became like the Chinese students, mainly the Chinese students themselves were the enemy. With the, so we, we had like this kind of progression there. And on the other hand, there was also this sort of, um, you know, understanding like with Gladys Liu um, earlier in the, um, earlier, well, late last year and how she was like connected to these kind of spurious sort of, Chinese soft power groups mm. um, and you know we don't want to defend her because she's pretty terrible but mm. um, you know like it certainly still stands that you know the, the way that they were talking about and you know within the context of these section 44 issues that other parliamentarians have been having mm. but you know like in the saying basically that like just because she was like involved in a Chinese mainland organization that that meant that she basically had the same citizenship problem as someone who actually was like a Canadian citizen, for example. Mm. The way that that discourse was sort of playing out, you know, kind of conflating the idea of someone being an alien due to citizenship and an alien due to simply like having residual ties with the Chinese mainland is just, mm. you know, really alarming. And it really shows, I guess, how the discourses, how discourses of citizenship kind of move around and, and whatnot. Yeah. And I guess, well, you know, you've, you've, you've talked already, you mentioned about, I guess, maybe it's worthwhile that we have a bit of a, of a discussion about how like, this yellow peril came about, how did and why has China occupied this sort of position in Australian history as a like, as like this great alien threat? Like, I mean, you've mentioned briefly things about the yellow peril, but do you have anything else to add on that in terms of kind of how this history, I guess, this is a very long history, obviously, back at least to the gold rushes, but then how that kind of gets weaponized and talked about? I know in an article you, you mentioned that there was direct reference by one of the, um, by these protesters in on some university to the anti-Chinese riots mm. in the 1850s, 1860s. So how does this history, I guess, kind of live on as well? Um, I, for one, I, I, think, I, th I think history is important, but um, I'm not really a historical essentialist. I don't think, you know, there's, um, I don't think we should strive for a linear cause and effect narrative um, here, I, well, I certainly acknowledge that yellow peril um, uh, serves, you know, serves as a uh, imaginary for us to think about a current event. But I think there are more important, more immediate um, historical um, reference we should draw. Or we should be drawing on. Um, I, I suppose, for, to me, the Cold War is a more uh, recent and direct uh, uh, event we should be talking about. You know, it's during this period when the historical yellow peril um, uh, narratives sort of shifted into uh, imagining that uh, 
actually called you know a red scare anti-communist mm. movement and china of course is one of the uh, remaining um so-called um communist state state um with a big c uh so you know you can you can you can imagine how easily um some people uh, would draw on draw the connection between um uh between you know the Cold War anti anti communist scare and and China today, uh, but we certainly we uh, we what we are seeing is also changing uh, changing forms of xenophobia. Uh, mm. Right now, these so called uh, red scare anti communist sentiments sort of you know conflated or converging with. Uh, an idea of China being massive superpower, a global superpower, the rise of China. So, I suppose what I want to say is this: you know, the, the, the long history plus the recent geopolitical struggle um, out there has produced this, you know, hysterical response that imagines China as a threat. Um, the current uh, manifestation of xenophobia is the product of, um, you know, on the one hand, history, um, a long history. On the other hand, mm. the recent geopolitical um, conflict um, in which mm. China obviously has been, um, China is a rising power. It, it is a superpower now. Well, I would say China is imperialist power. So you see this sort of, you know, geopolitical struggle uh, mingled with uh, a, a, uh, a rhetorically, you know, Cold War anti-communist um, sentiment plus uh, a yellow peril sort of underpinning that altogether, these all these elements together produced what what we have in our head today about about China. Um, yeah, so I think that's all really important to see that historical context. I think you said the Cold War is is super important, and I just think about. There's this cartoon, I need to find it, but it's from the Democratic Labour Party from their newspaper in the 50s. It was like a, a Chinese dragon sort of slithering along the ground, eating up all of the little bunnies of Asia. Like there's a little like Indonesia bunny, there's a little Vietnam bunny, and at the end, of course, is the little Australia bunny. There's this kind of communist Chinese influence. It's a really great example of the conflation of the yellow and the red perils. Um, and you know that's yeah, I think you said that is really important um, yeah. to the way that that how that history functions now. Yeah, and, and yeah. Um, I also think I don't know. Sorry, John. I don't know if you got this before we um drop that. Um, I also think apart from these um you know these historical um imaginings, we also ha we're facing a, a current um geopolitical contest. So mm. um, it's China being a superpower, China being imperialist power. Um, geographically and geopolitically, um, it's you know it, it it's so easy to to conceive China as as a as a threat with all these you know, historical um, precedents. So I think it's the a combination of history and current um, geopolitics uh, is um, what what I would say that gave gave rise to this narrative. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I mean, the way that, that that geopolitics is super important now because it kind of connects up with, you know, this kind of battle over over Hong Kong, right? Which has been obviously something you've been um, involved in kind of thinking about and, and debating within the broader kind of um, 
within um, these sorts of networks that are emerging, these global solidarity networks. So I'm interested in how kind of the Hong issue of Hong Kong is kind of bringing together, on the one hand, the way that Chinese, the way that international students from China are seen as undermining the higher education sector. So it's kind of where that that Chinese in, in Australia are, like there's that program that was out, um, that that Four Corners special, I forget the name of it now, but um, how it highlighted, you know, that the Chinese students were undermining, you know, the quality and standards of Australian education. You yeah. hear that a lot in the hallways of academia and these kind of broader concerns about surveillance and interference in the political process. And I think maybe the example of Hong Kong seems to unite these, these factors through the way that um, campus activism has played out. Do you agree? Like, is that something that you think is happening? Um, I, I certainly think, you know, I support Hong, the Hong Kong movement, but I certainly think in Australia, uh, talks of um, talks of international solidarity for Hong Kong cannot be a separate from an active rejection of Australian nationalism and anti-Chinese racism. I think this is mm. this is our I this is our um, lesson here in Australia uh, is that. Uh, uh, well, you see, you see, it's happening now with the coronavirus break narrative, and you see the same thing with the reporting and uh, our approach to Hong Kong. What we see is, you know, a genuine popular movement being um, sort of being exploited or capitalized uh, on by um, conservative and right and right wing uh, figures in this country to peddle. Um, uh, anti-Chinese racism to 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 harden their borders. So one example is which I wrote about um, last year is that um, on on campuses across Australia there were popular demonstrations for Hong Kong, sometimes against Hong Kong by nationalist um, students from China. And you, what we see is that in uh, protests. Uh, pr uh, promoting the Hong Kong or um, supporting the Hong Kong move movement, um, there is a narrative that here we are the um, champion of democracy. We support Hong Kong, and Chinese students are, you know, they're all brainwashed, jingoistic nationalists, um, mm -hmm. of, um, are placing, are playing the role uh, of playing the role of defending their country, defending their government. So this is, you know, a very simplistic camp theory that they put, it puts people into camps um mm. you know chinese students into the camp for the ccp and it puts the rest of us in the demo democracy camp and these two camps are um, um uh they, they you know they're contesting for power um so this is basically basically the image that we have uh, produced here in australia i mean the mainstream media is produced here in Australia. Um, so instead of um, supporting Hong Kong on the basis of international solidarity, we see, um, you know, solidarity being um, exploited here in Australia for fueling uh, the, um, you know, nationalist agenda, for um, you know, promoting our national um, interests. Mm. So, so basically, that, that is the issue um, against which I wrote about. In terms of mm. um, the trail of international students from China, particularly, 
what I saw last year when I was writing that article was that um, the you know mainstream media, politicians, and also some universities, um, they saw Chinese students, uh, I mean PRC students, as I don't know, they rarely depict them in in human terms. They they mm. call them the cash cow. That's the four corners. Um, yes, that's right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, program. <laughs> yeah they call them cash cows, and Clive Hamilton referred uh, them to refer uh, use the word um, brainwashed. Um, I can't remember what he said. Anyway, something mm. insulting. Um, mm. And you know there were references about them being uh, little foot soldiers for the CCP. You know, collecting data, bailing mm. our um, our citizens. Basically, they are a threat to democracy. So that was the depiction. Of, that was the mainstream depiction of mainland Chinese students um, mm. that I wrote about. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, it's it's really um. It's it's yeah. It's really really remarkable to see um, the way that that whole thing has been constructed from the Chinese and these mainland Chinese students as being sort of victims of Chinese power to being like mm. agents seems to have happened very quickly and without any real uh, knowledge or uh, recognition by the people who are purveying those ideas mm. so I guess what's really important and you've already touched on this but I want to flesh out a bit more is how can international solidarity kind of connect these struggles for freedom in Hong Kong and those in support of mainland Chinese students who are increasingly being being um, being victimised in Australia. How, I mean, the great thing about your article uh, in Made in China magazine mm. or journal uh, was mm. the way that you talked about how this idea of the mainland Chinese students is all brainwashed. You know, certainly undermined when we actually talk to them. It's like this remarkable thing. It's like you actually talk to people. Yep. You actually like figure out. You know, they, 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 this illusion of, um, of, of, of one-mindedness sort mm. of totally uh, disappears. So, what's the kind of, what's your, I guess, approach to being able to like use and and, and harness and and push forward the struggle in Hong Kong, um, mm. where that's at at the moment? We'll be interested to hear your thoughts as well. But I guess thinking about is how does it national solidarity bring these things together? Uh, yeah, I think that, that's a very, uh, very good question, um, which I think about a lot as someone who teaches mm. a lot of international um, students. Um, I think it's important that we, um, we, I think it's important that we see them as full political being rather mm. than some someone whose agency is being you know, deprived by the CCP or being controlled by the CCP. I think we should recognize that they are they are full political being. They have their politics. What divides people is mm. not their nationality. It's not their national affiliation or cultural affiliation. What divides people is their politics. So, yes, mm. bring me a nationalist student from PRC. Sure, I'd say he's not he or she is nationalist. But how is it different from a nationalist Australian student? Mm. Um, so I think we take their politics seriously. That's our, that should be our, um, our first step, is to recognise them as a full political being. Um, and the next thing is we need to engage in um, you know, genuine and productive politi political conversations with them. Mm. I think it's, you know, it's no doubt that 
these students, um, you know, given the educational uh, uh, constraints in China, uh, they hold, some of them hold, you know, problematic views, um, some of them are more, you know, liberal and some of them more radical. Uh, I think we should recognise the existence of actual diversity on the ground and mm. talk to them with that in our mind and, um, you know, avoid drawing, uh, drawing on ready-made assumptions such as, you know, oh, he's just brainwashed, I can't talk to him. Like, mm. I think we should treat them just as we treat everyone else. Um, in in political conversations or debates, mm. um, and to my knowledge, that all the students I've talked to, of course, some of them quite defensive when it comes to um, speaking of um, government policies in China. Some of them are quite um, nationalist, but many of them uh, have have their um, individual thinking or individual um, mindsets. They're not all uh, government line. Um, they're not all going around repeating the uh, the stuff that's been told to them by the CCP. Many of them are quite critical of their government. Uh, mm. And in my in my Made in China Journal article, I interviewed a few students. I asked them, you know, what do you think about Hong Kong? Um, contrary to what's been reported here in the mainstream media, many of them, many of these students supported Hong Kong. They voiced their solidarity for Hong Kong. Um, one of them even said that, you know, even if Hong Kong asked for national independence, I would support them because it's, you know, it's popular. Um, it's it's decided by the people. It's 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 people's decision. So, I think we should actively reject the you know media stereotypes of chinese students as um uh, you know as some sort of you know mechanism used by the ccp um mm. so uh, in terms of building radical international uh, internationalist solidarity with these students well i i i, I think we should uh, recognize that many of them um many of them faces uh faces specific challenges here in Australia and we should unite with them based on a principle of struggle against oppression and based mm. on the principle of striving for equality. Yes, they are international students, they are holding visas, they probably they're going to go back to China after after their study, but that doesn't give us any um, excuse for treating them as different, as um mm not holding the same rights as domestic students. So we should, you know, as educator, researcher, and as activists, I think we mm. should um, see international students in the same line, light as we see um, students from elsewhere and from, mm. um, from Australia. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right, isn't it? I mean, in terms of kind of contesting, if you want to contest the neoliberal university, it's very strange to think that what you want to be doing is kind of blaming international students for all the problems rather yeah. than saying, rather than recognizing that the turn to international students has been the result of the hollowing out of government funding hmm. for the university sector, you know, and it's like, and if we recognize that, then we recognize that the struggle is actually one which unites all domestic and international students, right? Around the fact that they are being exploited for to basically fill in the gaps that have been left by the gov by by government funding and greedy universities. That's yeah. the real point of struggle and point of solidarity, right? And 
that seems to be like something that's increasingly lost in some of the by some of the I think quite self-serving sort of um, white Australians and universities who've been mobilizing around the Hong Kong issue or the Uyghur issue or whatnot mm-hmm. as a way of kind of dividing the community, which is very you know um, very problematic, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of the last thing I wanted and and it's kind of both of our wheelhouses, so it could take some time is kind of getting back into this historical issue. You've talked a lot about how these students are not just, you know, organs of the Chinese state. And mm. I'm really interested in your research about diary writing about Chinese students in, um, about about Chinese, um, Chinese um, diary writing in the, in the um, revolutionary oh. era. Yep. And also how, and I guess I, I'm thinking about what your research shows about how, what is the, I guess what is the Chinese state's actually relationship to popular struggle and its understanding of popular subjectivities? Mm. B, how does the, um, what does this actually show us about the relationships that existed and probably still exist between uh, mass movements and and people in in China? Mm. I guess those would be the first two kind of to start off with. And I guess also how these, how you see this work is kind of informing, your, your historical work is kind of informing your contemporary activism as well. Uh, yes, thanks. Um, so for your, your first question, the relationship between, between the state and popular um, struggle. Hmm. I recently went to a talk given by some dubious um, white man about uh, <laughs> the differences between Mao's China and Xi Jinping's China, the current regime, and basically his, uh, his argument was just there's no difference. It's just, you know, uh, the state is sort of, you know, it, it, it's just a communist state, um, one one state change with, with different leaders. I disagree with that um, strongly. I think critical scholars these days um, in, in my field would dis- disagree with it. There is no totalitarianism. I don't think there has ever, ever been a totalitarian regime in China. So in my own research, the article that um, I just published, which you read, John, yes, is, yes. Uh, in... the, the, the point of departure is that um, the imagining of a totalitarian communist, communist state misses the point. It misses that, yes, Mao's regime had potentials to centralization of power, but the regime also relied heavily upon popular mobilization. It built its power on popular mobilization. It, mm-hmm. it, it waged you know, struggles and um, it called for national uh, mo- modernization because it's mobilized, based on popular mo- mobilization. So the, the, this is the difference between the Mao's regime and what came after the reform period when China was launched onto the capitalist um, mm. more road is that the, um, the the place of popular agency vis-a-vis the state has changed. So mm. in the past, the, um, the state, the Maoist state, uh, sort of uh, strove to bring the people into the state to make everyone think that they, they, are, they are a national subject, they have a direct relationship with the state um, and with the future of the country. Now, we don't see that anymore. 
I mean, the, the political agency of people has been cut off by the, since 1989, since the Tiananmen Massacre. The mm. um, post-1989 regime imposed various educational measures to make sure that people don't touch politics. Actually, you know, mm. leaders said clearly to people, you can make money, you can get rich, but just don't touch politics. So there's this, you know, change within the uh, state apparatus about the um, you know the place the role of um, of the um, the society or the, or the individuals. So that's what I would say for your um, first question about the relationship relationship mm. between state and popular struggles. Mm. And the second one uh, is um, the relationship between mass movements and people today in China, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yep. Uh, so. Well, I think once we've figured out um, the discrepancy, uh, the uh, different sort of ideas or ideals about popular agency in, in, in China, it's easy to say, sorry, it's easy to see um, the implications of this uh, on today's um, politics or situation in China. So we've seen in the, in the news I actually don't know whether this is in the mainstream news in Australia, but we've, I, I've seen online that all these um, popular uprisings in the, in, in the past few years were sort of brought, mm. up, brought up to the fore in China. We have students protesting um, together with workers in southern China against mm -hmm. the bosses. We have workers trying to you know, unionize, unionize in their um, workplace against um, exploitation to protect their mm. rights. Mm. And we've seen, you know, uh, Marxist students being arrested because they dare to challenge the, uh, the local authorities, the party state. We've seen mm. feminists, um, social activists being jailed at, you know, at increasing rate, even, uh, even doctors who, who, who dare to speak out about the coronavirus are jailed. Yeah. Them, um, died today. Um, yeah, that's absolutely tragic. Yeah, so to me, this indicates that the um, the party state, uh, Xi Jinping's regime, is worried um, popular political agency. Uh, mm. They are anxious about this, and uh, you know the, the 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 sort of I, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't say here it's a product of capitalist contradiction, but I think. You know, these years and years of um, uh, uh, years, years, years and years of CCP authoritarianism and capitalism has produced these deep, profound uh, uh, issues within China that's now boiling to the surface. And people are, um, you know, using various means. They have a very limited political freedom in China, but they they are they are seeking various ways to make themselves heard and to mm. try to make um, a difference. Uh, the Hong Kong movement has been a great inspiration for these uh, dissidents in China. Mm. So um, in, in, in Guangdong, for, in Guangzhou, one of the villages in Guangzhou, for example, uh, local people protested recently, this is like two months ago or something, um, mm. protested against local police. Uh, mm. For a building for, for their plan to build a dump waste um, facilities in their in, mm. in their village, and they drew upon um, you know they were inspired by the Hong Kong uh, protests. They drew upon their um, 
uh, tactics or the strategies, strategies, um, mm. uh, and they were, you know, they made explicit reference to the Hong Kong protests against police brutality. So I think you know, mm. it shows us that it's possible to to connect people based on a principle of struggle to connect people, you know, in the grass at the grassroots on the ground. Um, mm. So on. anyway, but that's not quite a point um, to your question, John. But... No, no, I think that's, that's really great. I mean, there's a lot to pick up from mm. my perspective there. I'm thinking about, like, I mentioned already, maybe before I actually started pressing the recording button, but just about this rhetoric of totalitarianism that you mentioned, which is totally mm. a Cold War framing. Like, mm. the idea of totalitarianism emerged in the 1950s out of, like, in social sciences, basically, to just say that Stalin and Hitler were the same thing. You know, and there's really no, so it's it's remarkable to see that kind of framing continuing mm-hmm. to be kind of taken seriously in mm-hmm. academia. The idea that there can ever be a total party state, which historians have spent decades undermining completely, and your work mm-hmm. does a great job of that as well, is kind of thinking like how is it even possible if you have, you'd have to have like zero understanding of human agency in order to believe that it was possible for there to yeah. be total control over over anyone over, over people and i think it's great where you bring up with the diary writing and you and with kind of in the new china period i guess the early period of the of the people's republic where you talk about how the state really sought to use these older examples of diary writing manuals and distributing mm-hmm. them to people and saying this is how you should become political subjects you should engage with and like model there were your sort of writings on these on on in this sort of way and you should be writing in this sort of way and really engaging as you said imagining yourself mm. as like a political subject mm. and then you're kind of saying that in the in the cultural revolution and kind of in the post Mao period as well you know increasingly they're not getting you to do it yourself but getting you to read and engage with other people's mm. is that right basically is saying you know that in that that you're they want to desubjectivize people once and this is an example of really how the Maoist state, far from being totalitarian, um, is actually incredibly fear. Is actually incredibly anxious. They mm. use the use the discourse of anxiety, I think, to yeah. explain how. So I guess that that's really interesting to me. Is there anything um, you want to add to that? Is that a, is that a fairly accurate summation of your work? So. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, it's it's great. Thank you for um, reading my article. <laughs> um, <laughs> great um, summary. Uh, I, I think what I will add is just the the the, um, the, the details, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the field of um, Chinese history, uh, some of the, um, the you know left-leaning academics have been arguing, which I agree, uh, mm-hmm. arguing for um, conceptualization of the Maoist state as a product, as an extension of um, a long pursuit, some sort of, you know, socialist pursuit. So I, in my article, I call, I call Mao's state a state socialism. Mm. Um, it's not, you know, socialism with a small s, it's a socialism mm. with a big s. It's a particular type of party state um, ideal, idealization of socialism, right? So mm. they inherited from, or they um, appropriated from socialist ideal, in particular Marxist ideal, um, about the individual being a revolutionary agent of change. Um, they incorporated this ideal of individuality and agency into state socialism, and herein they encountered 
a um, paradox or contradiction. Yeah. On the one hand, they wanted people to be, as you said, political subjects, to make changes, to build a nation, um, and so on, to wage class struggles, for example. On the mm. other hand, the fact that they acknowledged people are capable of doing this means that they can they can never totalize um, political agency. They can never totalize mm. this individual, right? So mm. this is their this is the paradox of um, the Maoist communist regime. On the one hand, they want people to be active, to be political, um, to, to be national subject. On the other hand, they're quite um, uncertain. So they issued all this you know, educational didactic material um, literature to make sure that they propagate the correct frameworks uh, for people's um, individualization, for, pe for people's um, exercise, uh, for people's uh, uh, exercising their political agency. So this is the paradox that's at the crux of my um, uh, that's the crux of my article, um, and I see these uh, paradoxical pursuit and worry about uh, individual agency as a sign of um, the states, uh, as the sign of the states sort of you know anxiety about this socialism's um, you know the genuine kind of emancipatory um, uh, energy embedded within socialism. So they can't really solve, they can't really resolve this contradiction. Um, mm. in their program and 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 that's basically the the reason I don't see this as some sort of you know product of uh, some kind of manifest manifestation of totalitarianism I don't think now state was totalitarian totalitarianism at all in part because mm. as I said earlier that they you know they they, they, they depended on popular agency and they also didn't mm. expect uh, homogeneity they didn't expect a one person, a single mass man, mass man acting according to one single doctrine. That's not what they um, were expecting. Mm, man, it's really fascinating and it's, it's really kind of refreshing to see that, to see your work in that and then also to, to in, in that regard, to bring out the, the examples of how of people's individual thinking of, you know, of the, of these individual social subjectivities in Mao's China, and then also to that you're carrying in on this, I guess, same methodology, I guess what we call history from below or excavation into the contemporary, into your contemporary politics as well. And into the way that you kind of trying to give agency or, bring, or acknowledge the agency of, of students, of, of Chinese students today, which is totally something that gets lost by both the left and the right, I think. Mm. Yeah, so, so thanks a lot. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, to, I think we, yeah, I think that's great. Well, thanks so much for for um, for, for coming on the show. Uh, sorry for the like kind of poor audio quality and other issues that we face. The technical issues are real. The struggle is real in the tech space. Um, and yeah, so what? So today, at, so well, you know, everyone who listens to this is gonna it's gonna be in the past. But there's this rally on today, and there's this is going to continue this issue around fighting uh, for the rights of, of, of international students and uh, not to be caught up in this, you know, disease pandemonium. So mm. best of luck with all of, <laughs> best of luck with all of that. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll have to keep that struggle going. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, for having Jan. Me. Not a problem. Okay. Have a nice day. Bye. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>
Thank you.